welcome to Sanctus Church. We're so glad that you're joining us again for the first time or you've been with us for a very long time. No matter who you are or where you come from or what province or what country you're listening in from, welcome. I was sitting with a group of pastors, virtually that is, on Zoom, from across the whole GTA, all sorts of different backgrounds. And we were talking about the moment we're in and that historians will be talking about this moment in a hundred years from now. We were reflecting on who could have imagined five months ago, five months ago, that every single church on earth would close its doors physically. That for the first time in Easter, globally, Easter would be shut down and virtually engaged in. In a hundred years from now, people are going to talk about this moment. One of my good friends said, who could have predicted five months ago that every single major urban center on earth was going to be emptied out? London, Paris, Tokyo, Seoul, uh, Moscow, uh, London, New York, Toronto, fill in the blank. That literally the streets of these grand cities would be empty because of a global pandemic. Who could have predicted And in the same breath, he said, and who could have predicted five months ago that still during this pandemic, those same cities, many of them, not all, would be filled by tens of millions of people protesting racial injustice on a global scale in a way we've never seen before. He said, who could have predicted this? We are living in some of the most unusual changing, exciting, needed, turbulent times. I think we all know, we still don't know what's coming next. And so I find it interesting that as we now come near to the end of our spiritual practices series, the second last one of the conversations we're going to have is about the spiritual practice of service. So far in this series, we've learned that Jesus is our model. We can walk with God the Father like he did as we spend time in these practices, in these environments, that we will encounter the God that we love and follow. And if we remain open in those environments, if we know God through Jesus alone, we will be transformed. And I said a few weeks ago, the word transformed is so easy to say, to preach, to talk about, but the implications are massive. Remember, transformation means alteration, change, revolution, renovation, makeover, conversion. And so if you actually walk with God in these environments, you will be altered, changed, revolutionized, renovated, made over and converted all over again. Now behind this grand ongoing divine transformation there stands probably the strongest and deepest and most needed of the spiritual practices. Like I said, it's the spiritual practice of service. So easy to say, so easy to affirm, so hard to do. I love this definition. Service, one wrote, is the loving, thoughtful, active promotion of the good of others and the causes of God in our world through which we experience the many little deaths of going beyond 
ourselves. What a word for this moment. What a word for any moment. Let this sit. To become personally more fully devoted follower, a follower of Jesus, or as a whole church to become more fully devoted followers of Jesus, there has to be a decision, a reaffirmation, a foundational bias, a supernatural reflex, uh, a determined resolution to serve. We say this all the time here at Sanctus Church. Jesus is not just Savior and Lord, but model. And and yes, Jesus used spiritual gifts to serve, but he used spiritual practices or holy habits to, to hear what the Father wanted to do and to model what a normal Christian life looks like. And behind all of them is the spiritual practice of service. So behind any church or growing generosity or or joyful gift-based ministry or, or any type of ministry, there is one spring that feeds all the rivers. It is the quintessential marker of Christianity. It is the spiritual discipline of service, which every single follower of Jesus is called into. To imitate Jesus is to do this. Period. So after so much that has happened, is happening, and will happen, we as a church, all Christians globally, must continue to look upon Jesus. Think about it. The one ongoing display, the one action that Jesus shows us, the the one thing that ties all of what he has done for us is service. He didn't have to leave heaven. He chose to. He left perfection, unity with the Spirit and the Father eternally, the worship of angels, no sins, no, but he chose to serve us. His living, his teaching, his healing, his freeing, his dying, his being raised, his ascension, all of them he is a servant to you personally, to us as a church, and of course the world. He chose to come and live among us and love us and teach us and show us not a better way, but the best way. He dies for us. He overcame sin for us. He faced down death and the demonic for us. He rose physically for us. He ascended for us. He's in heaven praying for you right now. And he says he's preparing a place for us and he's given us his Holy Spirit. Generous, self-giving service is the foundation, the frame, the grounding for everything in our faith, including the gifts. If there's one passage that captures and defines and moves us to this holy habit, it's John 13. I think I actually preached this very passage at the beginning of the ministry year in September. John 13, 1, it was was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew his hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So Jesus knows his hour has come. The cross was coming. He's aware. The battle would be terrible. He now knows it. He now knows he'll face down Satan and beat him. He knows he will face down death and come back. He knows he will take on every single sin that has ever been committed and all would be placed on him and he would remove all of its power. He also knew that at this moment he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father In other words, he knew he was heading back to the right hand of God. And never forget this. Jesus knows this before the cross. 
What we read about in Philippians 2, 9, he knows. Therefore, God exalted him. This is what happened after the cross to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And at this point, pre-cross, he knows this. Knows this. And then he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil has already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Judas has already made the deal with the political, religious leaders and systems of the day. Now, Luke goes farther and gives the whole picture. It reads like this in Luke 22.3, Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So Judas has already agreed to portray Jesus to the political religious authorities of the day, and Satan himself is now in Judas orchestrating the event. With all that background, it says in verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He had come from God and he was returning to God. Jesus now fully by the Holy Spirit <clears throat> knew that Judas had made the deal. Jesus could see Satan in Judas at this meal, in his friend, among his core leaders. Now, Jesus now also fully aware that he was from God, he is God, and he's going home. And it's here with all this information and all this insight that Jesus chooses to do one of the most dramatic, most epic, most insightful things that actually, so mind-bending as it is, it is one of the greatest things that has been preached in every style of church for 2,000 years. And many people outside of the Christian faith still point to this as an epic moment of history being changed. But Luke fills in the blanks about the conversation between Jesus and his closest followers just before this epic moment. It says in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. So Jesus said to them, the king of the non-Jews lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. The one who rules is the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it the, not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So ready? <laughs> Judas has already betrayed Jesus. Satan is in the room in Judas. The future leaders of the church, the hope of the world, are arguing about whose rights are more important and who gets to be in charge and who gets the respect and who gets the power. And Jesus says, oh, you've missed it. And he talks about service, but he doesn't just talk, then he acts. He gets up and intentionally puts on the uniform of a servant within that culture, but not just a servant, the lowest ranking servant in a wealthy home. Verse four, he got up from the meal, 
took off his outer clothing, wrapped himself, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around, the, around him. Okay, now, I think, like I preached in September, no matter where you were born, no matter where you grew up, we would all agree that foot washing is a big deal and feet don't smell great after walking for a day. I think I said jokingly a year ago, the gross is global. If you take someone's socks off and shoes off and wash their feet, it's close. It's personal. It violates all sorts of cultural boundaries. It's low. It's not a nice task. Much easier, I think I preach, to teach on foot washing, to preach on foot washing, to go to seminars on foot washing, to watch YouTube tutorials on foot washing, and listen to profound podcasts on the power of foot washing. Oh, but to do it. You know, so much more is going on within this ancient context. This is a full reversal of the expectation, the practice, and the custom of both wealthy Jewish homes and non-Jewish wealthy homes. In this world at this time, when an owner of a house would come home after a day's work or a business trip or a vacation, if the owner was more wealthy, a servant or a group of servants would meet him as he walked in and immediately wash his feet. At the front door was a basin and a pitcher and a towel. Culturally, by the way, if the family was not that wealthy, a wife would do this to her husband's feet. And in a religious context, rabbis would have their disciples do this to himself. But the owner of the house or the husband or the religious leader would never, ever, ever do this. So as Jesus begins to do this, there would be shock, disbelief, that cringy, like, what are you doing? I'm so embarrassed for you. This is inappropriate. Actually, you need to stop this. And Jesus goes one to the next to the next. And as I preached historically, I wonder when Jesus was doing this, now knowing all things and knowing the future, I wonder if he was saying Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say in Zion, your God reigns. Yes, Thomas, I wash your feet and you're going to go to Syria and then all the way to India and you're going to be murdered for preaching my name. And Andrew, you're going to bring the good news to Turkey and Greece, and you'll go all the way to what they used to call the land of the man-eaters, what we call Russia today. And Matthew, Matthew, you former tax collector and collaborator, you, believe it or not, you're going to go all the way to Persia and Ethiopia and, and speak about my name. Now, in this culturally violating moment, in this profound moment of holiness and love, it is interrupted, of course, by Peter... Can you hear Peter thinking? If the rest of you are not going to shut this down, this embarrassment, this inappropriate act, this wrong act, well, then I am going to take control and deal with this problem. So Jesus comes to Simon Peter, verse 6. And Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In the original language, it reads like this. Lord, you of me wash the feet, question mark. Jesus replies, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. Peter, in the moment, is like, nope, too far, 
too inappropriate. You don't know what you're talking about. It's like he talks right by Jesus. And he's like, this act is not significant. This act is not serious. This is a dramatic moment that is inappropriate and has to be, it's not world shaking. Just stop. So Peter says in verse eight, no, you shall listen to the language. Never wash my feet. Now, don't miss the power of this. And don't miss the point of this. Peter seems so in touch with God at this moment. So humble, so attuned, so aboard, so spiritual. But notice, Peter does not say, but Jesus, can I wash your feet? Can I serve you? See, this isn't humility. This is pride. I love again what that older preacher Chuck Swindoll once preached when he said this, this is nothing short of self-assertive pride that refuses to accept grace from another, the kind that will not be vulnerable in front of others. If Peter had dirty feet, he's going to take care of the washing by himself. No charity needed. Thank you very much. Peter's saying like, I'm embarrassed by you, Jesus. And I'm just fine. So would you just step back? By the way, we begin again right here to see why, by the reason why so many people are offended by the Christian message. Many, many people in the world don't believe God would even love them to wash their feet. I mean, that just would never happen, they believe. So no way. And yet many others, actually the majority would say, I don't need your help. I don't need you to wash my feet. I'll wash my own or I'll get something else to do that. Well, in this moment, Jesus says, unless I wash you, you've got no part of me. Fine, you're not my disciple then. Yeah, I know that you left your mom and dad. Yeah, I know that you left your, your life and your business. Yeah, I know you've walked with me for three years. Yeah, I know you saw me deal with Legion. Yeah, I, I actually know that you're there at the transfiguration. Yeah, I know three years of profound things, the feeding of the 5,000, on and on and on and on. You want, you want a bold conversation? You want a clear conversation? You want a over-the-top moment? Here, it's very simple. If you don't let me do this, you have nothing to do with me. That phrase, no part of me in Greek, that phrase has been used four times in the New Testament. It's always connected to heaven or hell. So if you really want to know this, he really says, if I don't wash you, you're on your way to hell. Just saying. See, Jesus is confronting self-protection and self-sufficiency. Another person just simply yet profoundly wrote, these words point us to a washing free from sin that only Jesus can give. Apart from his washing, no one can be in Jesus. This, of course, is the seeds, the genesis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul would summarize in Ephesians 2, grace alone, faith alone, through Jesus alone. Ephesians 2, 8, it is by grace that you get saved through faith. It's never from yourself. You can't wash yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not by works. No one gets to boast. Well, of course, Peter <laughs> then says very emotionally, well, then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and head as well. Like, wash the whole thing. I'm good. I'm in. I'm sorry. Jesus answered, those that have a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. You're already clean, though not every one of you. Peter, breathe. You're missing the point again in all of your rash. Mm. You're clean. You're already made clean. Now, lots of people, by the way, want to make this passage about baptism. 
Christian baptism and how baptism saves you. It doesn't. Christian baptism doesn't even exist by this moment. You can just read in John 15, 3, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Peter, you're already with me. You've embraced me, my teaching, my message. You've already given allegiance and lordship. You already claimed I'm the Christ. You have understanding through my word. You're clean. I'm trying to show you something more here. But not every one of you is clean. For Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said, not every one of you is clean. Well, when he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to the place. Do you understand what I have done for you? And he asked this of them. Now, I don't know if you just caught it or not, but I need to camp here for a moment. Did you catch it? Jesus washed Judas's feet too. He already knows supernaturally that he's made a deal with the religious leaders and the political leaders, and he knows what's about to happen, and he can see that the devil is in the room at this moment. And Jesus even washes Judas's feet. Jesus makes everything clear. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that's what I am. Yeah, I'm your teacher. Yeah, I'm your rabbi, but oh, I'm also Lord. This is overtones of divinity. This is I am the great king. It was Andy Stanley, I think, who years ago once said, what do you do when you're the most important person in the room? And Jesus says, oh, I'm your teacher and Lord. But then did you notice what he does next? Verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet. Uh, Did you catch it? I, I didn't catch it until I preached this in September. After a few readings, Jesus reverses his title. He says, teacher and Lord. Now it says, Lord and teacher. If you read the gospel of John, by this point, Jesus has already said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth and the life. And I am the true vine. And remember how John starts the gospel of John. John 1, 1, in the beginning at creation was the word. That's Jesus. And the word was with God. Oh, and the word was God. And Jesus was with God in the beginning. So Jesus says in this moment, If that is true of who I really am, I am your creator. I am the God who walked with Adam and Eve. I am the God who called Abraham. I am the God who met Moses at the burning bush. If I am not just God, but the true living God, the only God, and I'm your teacher and your king, if I'm the one who helped create angels and stars in reality, if I am the one who's about to conquer death and sin and Satan, and I have washed your feet, and I have ultimate ongoing, never-ending power. You should wash each other's feet. See it again. Jesus does not invite them to wash his feet. He says, wash each other's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. We've talked about this time and time again, that the reason why we exist is to make or produce fully devoted followers of Jesus of every age and stage. And as I shared uh, many times, Ray Vanderland 
helps us understand what a disciple was like in the first century when he said, like other rabbis of his day, Jesus had disciples. And the disciples' deepest desire was to follow the rabbi so closely that they would be covered in the dust of the rabbi, but they'd start to think like the rabbi and act like the rabbi. And Jesus says that the center of everything he has modeled for us The ground floor, the foundation, the well of all the other things is the spiritual discipline, the holy habit, the spiritual practice of service. Now that you know these things, verse 17, you will be blessed if you do them. Uh, Foot washing is dirty work. And again, notice, Jesus calls us to wash each other's feet. And and this, of course, brings us now to the moment we are facing. A moment where we actually all need to stop and ask, am I in danger of being anti-foot washing while claiming that I am becoming a more fully devoted follower of Jesus? Now, in the past, as I've preached this passage, I would confront things in our church like, I don't need to serve that way because that's not where my spiritual gifts are. And I'd be like, oh, we believe in gift-based ministry, but actually the spiritual discipline of service is the most significant. Or, Or many times I've had to confront in our years of history as we've changed again and again where people say, well, I like the way things are and I don't want to sacrifice comfort. And I, and I've been like, whoa, 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 service moves us beyond our comfort. But today, as we're living in this difficult, amazing, challenging new moment, I'd like to ask Sanctus Church, what is foot washing? What is the spiritual discipline of service look like for our church now? Let me read the definition I started with. Serving is the loving, thoughtful, active promotion of the good of others and the causes of God in this world through, we, through which we experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. So how do we work this out? One, to be at the table in the first place, you need to be washed by Jesus first. You cannot participate in the Christian discipline of serving unless Jesus has served you first. And at this moment... Let us all be reminded that the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Christianity, is reconciliation between us and God. Ongoing reconciliation between each other is the fruit, is the result, is the gift of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Let me put it like this. You're never saved by good works, but good works evidence if you've been saved. And this is so critical. Jesus said to Peter, I have to wash you. Then you can go imitate me with others. But I have to do something you don't have the ability. And actually, it's what Paul wrote, which is so critical. 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Jesus and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, what's the ministry of reconciliation? Well, verse 19, God is reconciling the world to himself in Jesus, not counting people's sin against them. 
And he is committed to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, so what's the message of reconciliation? We are Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Jesus's behalf, be reconciled to God. Ready? Verse 21. Here's the message of reconciliation. Here's the gospel. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Only a God-changed, Jesus-covered, Holy Spirit-filled heart can truly, at its core, change the world. Oh, we can change the world in many good ways, but at its core. And this is the most fundamental change, the most needed change, the longest-lasting change, and the wellspring of service. So before you go changing or trying to change the world in a good way, ask yourself, am I even reconciled to God through the work of Jesus alone first? And second of all, critical in this moment, if you are a Christian, have you confused the gospel with the results of the gospel? It matters. As Christians, we must fight structural injustice, systematic racism. And as a church, Sanctus Church and the church, but Sanctus Church, we must humbly admit when we've not done this, or understood this, or done, not done this well. As one person brilliantly wrote this week, actually uh, uh, one of the, I think, the editors of Christianity Today, he said, evangelicals have generally believed it was enough to preach the message of salvation and trust that justice would follow as a matter of course, but it hasn't. So this renewed call to fight for the downtrodden and call it injustice and, and deeply look into our souls and see if and when we've even participated in this, oh yeah, this process is going to take a long time, but it's needed. But in the middle of all this, the most important thing we can do is still share the good news of Jesus that actually changes the hearts of the people that build and fuel and support every structure on earth, good or bad. By the way, this is not an either-or moment. This is a both-and. It's righteousness and justice. It's mercy and justice. It's grace and truth. It's proclamation and protest. But can I please say, as one of your pastors, the gospel of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and the ability for him to save you is the most powerful weapon we have. Ask yourself this question. In the last four weeks, in this very, very difficult, needed time, how many times have you shared the gospel of Jesus with someone that could change their heart and our world? Second, we need to remind ourselves that we share a common Lord. If we don't do this, we're done. For weeks, COVID, financial crisis, the whole church going virtual, then of course the murder of George Floyd, and then this whole needed conversation on race and reconciliation and the gospel and how that's being worked out or not being worked out. I have worried, I've lost hope at many points, I've cried, I've wondered if we would even come back as a church post-COVID. And I know this seems overly simplistic, but I just want to take this moment to remind all of us that God chooses and predestines and elects who sits at his table, not us. 
Jesus has made us brothers and sisters, and we're going to spend eternity with each other. And if that is not the foundation of our church and the walls of our church and, and, and the, the, the glue of our relationship, we're, we're done. We're done. But I know that's not enough either. Three, we have to choose to stay at the table. We cannot wash each other's feet if we're not in the room. We cannot serve alongside each other, and we cannot serve with each other if we're not in relationship in the first place. But I also understand that we cannot stay at the table in a quiet or false way. So in this moment, one of the most significant ways we can begin or continue to wash each other's feet is to at least begin by sitting with each other and hearing our stories. Out of this, the serving in our church and our world will grow with exponential power. We're a church with 40 or 50 nations right now. And we have moved from what we were to where we're going, and we're somewhere in between. And at this moment, we should make a decision to sit with each other, to listen, to pray. How can you mourn with someone, as Romans says, if you don't know them? How can you rejoice with someone if you do not know them? How can you enter into someone's pain or groan? And oh, because I don't want this to be fake. How can you learn to charitably disagree with each other? Because there's going to be lots of disagreement. How can we challenge each other, laugh with each other? How, unless we are at the same table? This is how we begin to wash feet over the long haul. By the way, that's why coffees and connect groups and serving teams are critical, even if they're virtual at this moment, because they actually provide the space needed beyond 30 seconds or, or three minutes. Actually, they provide the right space over time to do this over the long haul that leads to real change. Now, I know, of course, in the last three weeks, we've been talking specifically about race and racism in the gospel. And we, you know, as a church, uh, last week recommended four resources to begin to read, to understand, to be aware, to dialogue. And one book I've just started reading is uh, called Be the Bridge. It's written to an American audience, basically, dealing with the history of racism in America and the conversation mostly is between blacks and whites and God's heart for racial reconciliation. But it does give some good structure and process for us to engage at Jesus' table, no matter our background. It might be a good read for many of us as we try to work out the spiritual discipline of serving alongside of each other and with each other over the long haul. Fourth, everyone at the table has to be ready to wash each other's feet, including Judas's feet. As I've watched over the last 12 to 15 weeks, not many people are willing right now to wash who, whoever you perceive, perceive Judas to be. By the way, I want to make this very clear, and I know I'll probably get many emails about this. I'm not using this statement to push by anyone's pain or grief or distrust. I'm not just using this as a way to sort of spiritually say, shut up and move on. 
When I serve in releasing prayer, there are always these painful moments where someone has to begin to learn to forgive someone else. Not, not move by and forget what they've done, but choose not to use it against them. And many times I've said to people, are you, can you forgive? They're like, I cannot forgive. And then I'll say something like this. Okay, I understand that because forgiveness is a process. I had a, Jesus didn't come with Adam and Eve. Like, it's a process. I'm good with that. But would you be willing, would you be willing, would you be willing with Jesus' help to declare to Jesus, with his help, you'll begin? And most of the time people say yes. We cannot get by Jesus' example here. There have been and are people that have hurt you or offended you in, inside of Sanctus and out. <laughs> Three and a half thousand people in this church, a lot of stories. And all I want to ask you today is this. Would you be willing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? and wash or prepare to wash the feet of those that have offended you or hurt you. Lastly, the same table that Jesus washed his followers' feet at is the same table that Jesus gave us the gift of communion. They happen in the same act. And if this is not truly where our unity finds its center, I don't know where it is. We told you this was going to come this week, and hopefully you have some juice or some wine or some bread ready, but would you be willing across all of our homes, spread it all, all across the province and beyond, be willing to still say, I will take communion. I am in relationship with all these other people because of Jesus. I just want to read the words of Paul. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For what I receive from the Lord is what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he, he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This is a cup. This is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. Every one of you ought to examine yourself before you eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we'd not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, we are judged in this way by the Lord. We are being disciplined so we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. So before we take communion together, the first way you respond this week is you say, Lord, I want to learn to serve like Jesus. I want the spiritual discipline of service to grow. Number two, I think we need to take some time to wrestle through all the questions of 
Am I staying at the table? Am I willing to stay at the table? <laughs> Am I okay with who God has placed beside me at the table? But I would like us to end by taking communion together because in this, in, in this moment of disruption, in this moment of great challenge, medically, racially, economically, globally, this unity does transcend. Jesus took bread, broke it, and said, this is my body, broken for you. He took a cup of wine at the Passover meal, one of the goblets, said, this is my blood. It's shed for you, a new covenant, a new agreement, a new ability to meet God through me. If you got that, would you take that at home and say, yes, this is where my unity is with Jesus and others. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. Lead us into all truth. Grow us and serve us in a way that we never have. Mark us with love. Continue to work out real, biblical unity among us. Help us to repent. Help us to be open to your spirit and each other. Do a profound thing in this moment as our church moves into your God, your, uh, your, your future, Lord, the future that you're building for us. Yeah, thank you, Lord, that uh, we do have the bond of peace with each other through the Spirit. Yeah, just continue to guard it, protect it, grow it, and help us to understand more uh, in Jesus' name. And we all said, wherever you are, amen. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for your prayers. Thanks for your conversations. Thanks for your wrestling. Thanks for your tears. Thanks for your ongoing attempts to be more like Jesus. Keep praying that God does a profound, unique thing through and in this moment that will ripple into eternity. We'll see you next week as we actually end our spiritual practices series. And we talk about celebration, finding the good things of God in this world. We'll see you next week.